Good you morning. There was already a miracle that happened this morning. When young Charles prayed, I understood every word he said. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that was a very good you prayer. Pray and I just picked it up. That was amazing. It sounded almost like English. Excellent English. Sounded like it. How many of you are? How many of you would call yourself a problem solver? Got one, two. Sometimes. You were called fix it man when you were smaller, right? When you're. Are you a little guy? Fix it now. Huh? How many of you are problem solvers? Well, how many of you have problems? <laughs> Let me say that. Let me ask that question. How many of you have a problem? And are in need of the problem solver. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I'm going to share with you today may not fit into your view of the world. <laughs> the, message, yeah, the message may seem unusual to your sense of culture or maybe in conflict with the way you believe about things you believe about life. Uh, part of it may sound too strange to believe. Let me review this before you <laughs> Part of it may sound too good to be true. But let me say this. What I speak to today is not only completely true. It can completely transform your life. That's my heart's desire. What I want to share with you today is how the greatest problem in the universe has been solved. And we all have problems. And some problems are bigger than other problems. And I want to speak today of how the greatest problem in the universe has been solved. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that would be important to know? I mean, that would give us hope for every other problem that happens, right? If we knew how the greatest problem is solved, then it would give us hope for every other problem that we face. So first, I want us to consider what the Bible teaches us about God. The Bible describes how from nothing God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't He didn't reform existing matter into the earth out of nothing. He created the heavens and the earth. How he formed all living creatures and plants. The Bible gives us evidence of God's surpassing power and wisdom. And the Bible offers this freely to us as a gift. And the Bible glorifies God's perfection in everything he has ever done. In addition, the Bible teaches us the truth about ourselves, explaining that God designed us in his very own image. God designed us after his own self so that we might be able to relate to him, have a relationship with him. He designed all of our human capabilities to acknowledge and appreciate and to trust him, our minds, our hands, our eyes, our ears, our smell, our sense of touch. Everything he designed, even our hearing and our sleep, he designed that we would acknowledge his greatness and his goodness. God designed us so that every human need, he would be able to supply the solution for that need. There's no need that you have that God cannot meet. 
And God, every facet of your human being, God created and designed after him own, his own self so that we might relate to him. So the Bible teaches us some very fantastic truths. <coughs> Sometimes people have a hard time believing and understanding this. But this is what the Bible teaches us. He designed us so that every need, he would be both the source and the sustainer of life. So far, everything is good, right? No problems. Everything's good. The Bible goes on to, ex to expose the very first sin, the first act of disobedience from our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, who rebelled against the one restriction God had given to test them. And now, everyone that is descended from Adam, which is all of us, we've also rebelled against God including you and me. Therefore, we are all guilty before him. None of us are holy. We are all sinners, and we all deserve punishment for our sin. You begin to see a problem developing here. God is angry and offended over our sin. And our sin has separated us from him and has introduced death into the world. All the suffering and evil we see in the world, even today, has flowed out of and sprung from sin against God. Everyone in every family, for every generation, in every culture, in every country, in every language has rebelled against God in his demands. As a result, as I said, God is angry, he's offended, and he's going to judge the guilt, and he's going to condemn the guilt in our lives. All we have ever done, all that we have ever said, all that we have ever thought will be compared to his perfect command. On our own, there's no way for us to remove the guilt before our, from our sin in our lives. On our own, we are guilty forever before God. And this is a great problem. But this is not the greatest problem in the universe. We sense, when we feel our guilt before God, we know this is a great problem. But it really only affects me, right? The reason this problem is not the greatest problem in the universe is that it only affects a finite number of people, of creatures. Let me explain. The Bible reveals that God knows everything and that even before he created the world, he knew and thought about us. Even before the world existed, God thought about you and me. For you've always been in his mind. And then the Bible makes a very, very <coughs> special announcement. And it's this. God has claimed people from every tribe, every nation, and every language on the earth to be his people. To be adopted into his family with him as father. But since we have all sinned and are separate from God, now God has a problem too. He claimed us, but we are unworthy of him. And not only has God always desired a people for himself, he has staked his own honor and integrity on making it happen. 1 Samuel 12 in the Bible, in the Old Testament, verse 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people... For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Can you feel the weight of this? We have a problem in that we are sinners from birth. And we have no hope. I'm sorry, Mary. Apart from Christ, we have no hope at all. Nothing. But God, before he even created the heavens and earth, was thinking about us and has claimed out of all the people in the world a people for himself. And that, my friend, is an infinite problem. Because God is infinite. He has given his word. He's going to claim a people for himself. And everybody, every person has sinned against him. So what does God do? Does he wink at the sin? That's a phrase we use in English to pretend it didn't exist. Does he ignore the sin? The sin has offended him and made him angry. It should be punished. All men and women on the earth are guilty sinners deserving God's punishment, and yet somehow, some way, God has called a people from every nation. He's not left out any nation, any tribe, any country, any language. He's called people from every place to be adopted into his family. How could God be just and holy and righteous if he didn't judge the sin of these people? If you were taken to court, if you took somebody else to court that had sinned against you and the judge looked at them and says, oh, you're forgiven, and you said to him, why, why did you forgive me? He said, because I just don't like it. Or suppose, man, you had a daughter who was raped and the rapist was captured and they brought him to the, the, the judge and the judge says, well, I just forgive you, Mr. Rapist, and you were there with your daughter. Would, would that be okay with you? And we are finite creatures. We're talking about offending God. How does God just wipe away sin? How can God be both just and merciful and maintain both abilities continually? This is the greatest problem in the universe. Because God is infinite and his word will stand forever and here he has thought about and claimed the people for himself and yet everybody he claimed rejected him. How can God... And he staked his name and integrity on making this happen. How in the world is God going to solve the problem? Well, what is impossible with man... Is possible for God. That's right. Say that with me. What is impossible for man is possible for God. God made a way to solve the problem. In his wisdom, God determined that men and women would be forgiven if a perfect, innocent substitute would bear the punishment that they deserved. If somebody else would come forward and bear the punishment that I deserve, then I could be forgiven. This substitute would have to bear all of their punishment. And not just my punishment, but Greg's punishment. And everybody else's punishment. That is great. It is great. <laughs> the substitute must be strong enough 
to endure. The substitute must be brave enough to face God's wrath. The substitute must be compassionate enough to give himself for somebody else. And not just a good person, but to give himself for sinners like us. The substitute really must love us. Where can you find somebody like this? They're, in, they're completely innocent. They've never sinned. But they're brave. But they're compassionate. But they're strong. But they're mighty. Who could be the substitute? God decided in His wisdom that the salvation, the forgiveness obtained by the substitute would be applied to people not through their good works, but by faith. That was God's choice, God's decision. That the application of what this substitute would acquire for us would be received by faith, by simply believing. And this faith is not of ourselves. It's, it's, the faith is from God. So like I said earlier, every problem we have God has made it such that he is the solution to the problem. If we need faith, he gives us faith to believe. If we need forgiveness, we have faith to believe that God forgives us through the sacrifice of the substitute. See, the greatest problem in the world, the greatest problem in the, in the universe has the greatest solution in the universe. Mm -hmm. God decided that this faith would be simple. <laughs> that it would be those who believed God, believed His Word. It would, be, it would be those who believed that God exists. And it would be for those people who believe that God rewards people who seek Him, who set their mind and their heart on seeking after God. The Bible teaches us that the way of salvation to God is not achieved by trying to earn your way through good works, by giving a lot of money, or by any other deed, but by believing Jesus' death and resurrection was his gift for me. God says that he will no longer hold our sins against us when we trust him alone to save us. In this way, God solves all the problems. He remains just and holy. Why? Because the sin is punished in the substitute. And his people that he had claimed before the beginning of the earth now can be fully forgiven and received into his family. So God takes our problem and the greatest problem in the universe and in one magnificent way of salvation solves the problem. So, again, I, I refer back to the Bible. All of this teaching springs from the truth in the Bible. And it may not fit in what you've ever understood before or, or ever thought about before. But God has given many, many examples and confirming evidences in the, in the Bible that confirm that His Word is true. So I believe this with all my heart. This is the way to God through this substitute. So if we are sinners... And I've already said that we're all sinners. You know in your heart if, how you've disobeyed or how you've stolen or how you've lied or how you've not loved God with all your heart. We all know we're sinners. If we get the music turned down and it gets quiet enough, 
and our mind begins to think we know we're sinners. We also know that there's a God. So why is it important to escape judgment and the eternal wrath of God? Why do you think God gives us signals of pain today? Every signal of pain in your body today is given to you to tell you something is wrong. Your hand is set over a fire and it's going to burn. Move it. You know, every 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 strike of pain that's telling you something is wrong. You need to get help. But what if there's never any help? When God punishes sin, He says He will pour out His wrath, His anger upon this. And it's important for us. If we don't have to endure that forever, and instead we can receive forgiveness, and that is what we want. God rewards those who seek after him. All through the history of mankind, people have thought about God. They've given him different names. They've wondered what he's like. They've wondered what he thinks about them and how they can reach him and how they can be assured of a relationship with him. For all ages, people have wondered about God. <coughs> Everyone imagines what death will be like. What happens when you die? Is there anything that comes after death? Men have invented all kinds of schemes to try to help themselves cope with what happens when people die. The Bible says that in their hearts, all people know that they are sinners. They know that there is a God. But many people have silenced their conscience. The Bible teaches us that all people will die only once, after which they face God, who will judge every thought and action of their lives. There's no reincarnation. There's only eternal glory for those who trust God, or eternal wrath and suffering for those who do not trust God. Romans, in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 18, tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men. So, just to recap, we have a problem, we're sinners. God is angry. He's going to pour out wrath upon that. But God has claimed the people before himself, and he staked his integrity on making it so. So God has come up with a solution. He said, well, if, if a substitute would bear all of the punishment I deserve, and I put my faith and believe that that substitute actually acted for me, that I would be forgiven. So who is the substitute? Who is the substitute? Who could fit the requirements of the substitute? We praise God that God has chosen a way of escape for all mankind. He didn't have to, but he had committed that he would have a people for himself. See, this is God's promise. We praise God that he's done this. The way of salvation that God provides is based on trusting Jesus to have fully obeyed the commands of God. We would not. We are, we are, our, our, our faith in Jesus is because he is innocent of all sin. He fulfilled all of God's commands. And not only is he holy and innocent of sin, he gave himself on the cross in our place by dying. Jesus didn't have to die. You see, death is only a result of sin. 
If you never sin, you never have to die. That's how we know everybody's a sinner, because everyone dies. But Jesus didn't have to die. He chose to die. He made a decision to die for us. Without his sacrifice, we have no hope of entering the presence of God. After all, God is perfect and holy, and we are not. God is going to judge those who've sinned against him. If he did not judge sin, he would not be he would be approving evil and would no longer be holy and righteous. Evil is doing such things as lying, stealing, and not honoring God. If you've ever lied and stolen, you are a liar and a thief. God calls us, God will not let liars and thieves enter into heaven. So in order to escape his wrath, God calls us to trust in Jesus. I want to be delivered from God's judgment and wrath. And I think all of us do. All of you do. But what makes Jesus deserving to be the Savior? What makes, what, what makes Jesus the one who can solve the greatest problem in the universe? And why is Jesus the only one? Well, Adam, the first man, led all humankind into sin. God placed Adam into a perfect world. Perfect. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no fear. The temperature was right all the time. The plants grew wherever they were planted. The, the animals responded to him, and Adam named all the animals. Everything Adam needed, God supplied. Adam had purpose. He had work. He had relationship. And he had one test to not eat of just one certain tree in the garden. But Adam rejected God's warning and violated his command, and God immediately judged his action as evil and wicked, and it brought death, separation from God. But see, Jesus, who was our Redeemer, did what Adam could not do, did not do. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't come into a perfect world. He came into a world ruled by ruthless invaders. He was born to a poor teenage virgin mother of a persecuted people in a remote town. Jesus did not have a biological human father. He was born not in sin, but under the power of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus lived a perfect life, never violating any of God's commands in deed or in word or even in thought or intention of his heart. He submitted himself fully to the will of his Father with a pure attitude, doing God's works and preaching his message. Because he never sinned, Jesus was never under the judgment of sin. He was not cursed under the law of God. He did not have to die. Jesus, in obedience to God's will, gave himself willingly for us. He laid down his life to death on the cross. The way to think about this, that I think is helpful, is to see that God took our sins and put them on the back of Jesus. Oh, here's another cross. As Jesus was on the cross, God took our sins and put them on Jesus' back and then poured out his punishment upon Jesus so that our sin was fully punished. Now, the weight of the sin, the horror and terror of the sin was such that it drove Jesus 
to the point of death. And Jesus finally, willingly gave up his spirit to death. The Romans pierced his body with a, with a spear to make sure he was dead. And then they buried him in a, buried the body in a cave. And then they rolled a large stone in front of the cave. I don't know who's going to go in to see a dead body in a cave, but the Romans rolled a large stone in front of the cave to keep people out and then put a guard of four Roman soldiers with swords and spears so that nobody would break in the cave. But since Jesus had no sin, the Bible tells us that it was impossible for death to hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. For death had no power because he had no sin. So on the third day, just as prophets in the Bible hundreds of years earlier had foretold, God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Forty days later, Jesus was taken up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And in heaven, he entered the great courts of God. And God granted unto Jesus all authority in the universe. Today, Jesus lives, rules, and prays for his people to turn to him, to receive his love, to find life in him, and to walk in the way of God's promises. Jesus is alive today. Now, why would God go to such great length to save sinners from every language and nation? Why would he even care? Well, it's not just that God had made a commitment. He had made a promise to himself. He had staked his, his word. He had staked his integrity. He staked his holiness and justice on doing this. There was another reason. He loved us. He, he wanted us. He wanted, he wanted his family to be filled with people of faith who believed him. The Bible says in John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, through Jesus. God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to rescue us from the penalty of sin. God treated Jesus as if he were the sinner so that we, the sinners, could be treated as if we were righteous. You remember earlier I said that God placed our sins upon Jesus on the cross. God did something even, even, even more fantastic. He took the righteousness of Christ, and through faith, he put righteousness on us. So not only did God remove my sin, he dressed me in a robe of righteousness through faith in Christ. We can see the greatest problem in the universe crumbling under the wisdom of God and the power of God. God treated Jesus as if he were the sinner so that we, the sinners, could be treated as if we were the righteous. Hallelujah. How great is the love of God. Only infinite redeeming love would ever do this. The Bible again speaks of this in Ephesians 3.18. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, 
how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. So this morning, so I want you to consider how Jesus solved the greatest problem in the universe. I want you also to, to begin to value what Mary led us to sing about the love of God. The, I want you to value the love, the greatness of God's love, and I want you to do it in four specific ways. First, I want you to consider the costliness of the act of God's love, of Jesus' love for us. One way to value the greatness of Jesus' love is by considering how much it cost him, Right? I mean, it, what I mean is this. you would think that a greater sacrifice reveals greater love, right? And a sacrifice that only requires a few bruises cannot compare to a sacrifice that calls, costs your life. So if it only costs Jesus one afternoon of time and sweat, then that's one degree of love. But if it costs his life, it re- reveals a much higher degree of deep, strong love. case is closed. But there are even more costs to consider. Beyond the pain and suffering of the cross, look at the other costs of this fully human, fully God man. His strength. He was a young man. He was 33 years old. He was younger than Jason. And he was struck down entering the prime of his life. That's a cost. I mean, he wasn't 99 years old, walking around with a cane. He was a strong young man. Struck down, entering the problem of his life. His family. He was the oldest son of a widowed mother. And he was responsible for her. And here he was, having to give that responsibility to one of his closest friends. For him to take care of her. His perfections. The most caring, the most courageous, the most wise man who ever lived, the man most worthy of living and least worthy of dying. Even his enemies could not find no fault in him. His perfection. And his glory, human nature and divine nature united in one person, the worth of his life was not merely superior to other human lives. This life was of infinite value. Not the way other lives are valued, but the way God himself is of infinite value. Jesus paid the price because he had infinite value. Summing these together only gives us an idea of the cost of Jesus to love us. And in it, we can see the greatness of his love for us. Okay, the costliness of his love, that's one way. Second way. I want you to consider the greatness of God's love by seeing how undeserving is the object of the love. In other words, who receives the love and are they undeserving or are they deserving? We need to consider how little we deserve this love and how little at the time he died for us did we love him. Matthew 5, 46, 47, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you, only, if you greet only your brothers, 
What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I mean, Jesus is calling to attention. If you only love because it's easy to love that person, they're very lovable, or they're worthy of your love, or you, 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 you regard them as high, high exalted, and so you love them, he's saying that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Since we are undeserving or unlovable, God's love seems even more amazing. In fact, the more undeserving and the more unlovable we are, the more amazing God's love seems to be. We are sinners. We, we, we're disobeying Him. We're disbelieving Him. We're disregarding Him. We're even cursing Him. We are prideful, angry, lustful. You, you get the picture here. That's who we are. We are extremely undeserving, and yet the perfect one loves us. Romans 5, 6, and 8 and verse 10 say, For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So we were weak, ungodly enemies of God and sinners, but Jesus chose to suffer in our place such that he now calls us friends. He calls us his friends. All because of what he's done for us. The infinite unworthiness of our condition reveals the infinite graces, the the greatness of God's love for us. Now, the the next point, the third point, is is a little bit different, but I want you to think through this with me. The greatness of God's love is seen by the freedom Jesus has to love us or not love us. If a person does something loving for us, It seems to be loving, but they only do it because someone is forcing them to do it where they don't really want to. Then we don't perceive that that's a very great love, do we? Love is strong only in proportion to its liberty to choose not to love. Okay? Suppose you wreck your car and the insurance company pays you $4,000 the car. You don't marvel at how this insurance company loves you. Right? They had legal obligations to you. They were under a contract. They were forced to do this. But if a friend tows that same old car to their home and buys new parts to repair everything and works on it for a month and gives it a paint job and fills it up with gas and then brings it to you, you will call that love. Because they were not under no compulsion to do it. They did it out of their own free love for you. Jesus chooses to love you with the greatest liberty possible. No one ever forced Jesus to die or to suffer for us. Not Judas. Not Annas the high priest. Not the Pharisees. Not Herod. 
Not Pilate, not the angry crowds, not the Roman soldiers, not Satan, not even God the Father. Jesus chose to give his life for you with complete freedom, freely choosing the path of love in every single step he took. Consider the choices that Jesus made in love for you. Having lived eternally in glory in heaven, before the world began, he chose to leave his heavenly home. He chose, the Son of God chose to enter a woman's womb. <laughs> he chose to enter a woman's womb and to be born in a stable. A stable. He, he chose to obey and submit to earthly parents. He chose to study and obey the word of God. He chose to fast and to battle Satan for 40 days and nights in the desert. He chose to minister and heal the sick, the invalid, the blind, the lost, and the demon-possessed children of Israel. He chose to spend nights alone in prayer. He chose to wash the feet of his disciples. He chose to endure the betrayal of of his closest friends. He chose public humiliation. He chose public beating and suffering on the cross. He chose to refuse to call for angels for relief on the cross. He chose to bear the full wrath of God. He chose freely to do it all through every step without regret because he loves you. We can measure the greatness of his love by the freedom he had to love or not to love. The last one I want to cover here is the greatness of God's love is seen by the greatness of the benefits we receive. And they are very great. If a person claims to love us through their sacrifice, but we don't, we're not really helped by their love, we might wonder if this kind of love really means anything. Great love is not just making a sacrifice for someone. Great, strong, powerful love makes a real contribution to someone's life. So we can say, the greater the benefit to us, the more amazing is the love. Now how great is the benefit of having your sins forgiven? If we are helped to pass an exam or we're welcomed into a new home, we may feel loved. I feel loved by Lisa and Randy's greeting this morning. That's one kind of love, right? If we are helped to get a job, we may feel loved in a, in a different way, a better way. If we are helped to escape from an oppressive prison and given freedom for life, we will feel loved a third way. But if we are rescued from eternal torment, and promise a place in the presence of God with fullness of joy and pleasures for eternity, we find the perfect love that passes all other loves. This love surpasses all other loves. In Jesus, we have received the greatest of all blessings, greater than anything we could ever imagine. We have life in Jesus and satisfaction in him. Jesus shows his great love by declaring us innocent. He shows us his great love by 
showing us the cost of the love to him. He shows us great love by, by, by the, the unworthiness of the object of his love. He shows us great love because of his freedom to love us or not love us. He shows us his great love by revealing the greatness of the benefits received by his love. And believe me, we've just touched the surface. But it's enough to give you something to think about this week. This substitute, this Jesus, has solved the problem. And now the substitute himself calls people everywhere, in every country, in every language, to believe him. No matter what their culture says, no matter what the news say, no matter what anyone else would say, Jesus, the substitute, calls everyone to trust him, to put their confidence in him, to put their faith in him, and to no longer try to work their way to God on their own good deeds. The substitute calls us to confess our sin and to repent of it. The substitute calls us to receive his forgiveness when we believe in him. He calls us to be transformed. He wants to make our life brand new. He wants us to be born again into his family and to receive the fellowship of his people. He's calling us today. And he asks, will you, will you come? Will you come to me? Now in a minute, we're going to observe what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, we have uh, some bread and some juice here. And this is a practice of Christian churches all over the world. We were given the command by God himself. It says, do this in remembrance of me. And as we do this, this is for people who, who believe Jesus is the, their substitute. This is for, for people who believe Jesus is their substitute to come and participate and worship him in this way. Maybe when I began this message, some of you may not have believed, but now you do. God, if God has opened your eyes to believe in Jesus, then you're welcome to participate. But he gives us this, um, it's a very tangible uh, ordinance of, the, of our faith. We can, we can see the bread. And there's much in the scripture that describes about Jesus being the bread of life. We can see it. We can touch it. We can smell it. We can taste it. We, we can swallow it. It becomes us. The, this bread is going to become you when you take it. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you take Jesus, you're taking Jesus inside of you to live with you. And he says that this is a very personal thing. And that we should examine ourselves. When we examine ourselves, what's going to happen is we're going to find that we have sinned against God and we're going to ask God again to forgive us, to help us. By taking it, we're proclaiming to the world that we belong to Jesus. And we rejoice and we share this with others.